Uh, it is our custom to stand during the reading of the reading of the scripture, and so I want to invite you to stand with me as we hear from John chapter 12, begin with verse 37. And if you have your Bibles, please open them and leave them open, because this is probably one of the most difficult passages that the Gospel of John gives to us to understand concerning God's Word. And so as we look at this, we're going to begin with verse 37. We've already talked about or seen how John has uh, led us down a, a road that's been very surprising because God does the unpredictable. He continues with these words, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, even many among the leaders believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than the praise of God, from God. Then Jesus cried out, whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them in that last day or at that last day. For I did not speak on my own, but my Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Would you look at your neighbor and say, and ask them, did you understand any of that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I want you to know. Uh, one of the things that's a real joy in being a pastor of a church is being able to preach on passages that are extremely difficult. And so um, I'm going to go ahead and pray and ask God to bless us as we've read his word and go home. And can everybody say amen? <laughs> yeah, that would be wonderful, wouldn't it? Well, we can't do that because we know that to really worship God, he expects us to understand his word, to leave this place encouraged in our faith in God and to, to know that God does not give us things to leave us in the darkness, but has brought the light of Jesus Christ into our life. And so in light of that, I just want to begin the sermon by asking, did you see the, ser the funeral for the queen, the, the queen Elizabeth? Did you see it? the pageantry, the overwhelming traditions that were there. I, I know some of you, I know some of you were there only because you really wanted to find out the dirt on what's happening with the two brothers, right? That's really why you tuned in. You wanted to see if, if what is his name? Ha ha Harry? 
Yeah, I wanted to see if he was dressing up and pretending. Yeah, all of y'all were really, I could tell, I could tell. And, and more importantly, uh, after everything was done, it was always analyzed, wasn't it? There was always an analysis of what this means, what it doesn't mean, you know, who's in, who's out. Um, I, I was, uh, I really was surprised. I thought to myself, I'm so grateful I am not a royal, aren't you? Because you can't blow your nose without having someone analyze it. Well, this morning, as I think about that, the one thing that was not analyzed is what happened to the queen after she died. No one ever talked about that. The funeral was in a large church, Westminster Abbey. There were people who read God's word and scripture. That was not talked about. There was nothing that led you to any kind of hope that she was anything more than dead. And as you think about that, and as you think about your own life, one of the things that becomes very apparent is the older you get, the more death becomes a reality, that there is a time in which all of us will die, that there is an end of life, just like there's a beginning of life. And, and I want you to know, at the age of 61, I, I kind of look back at some people who are younger and think, man, if I could just do it again. You ever felt that way? You might be in your 20s and you're looking back in high school or, or middle school and say, man, if I could just do that again, right? You want a do-over. Well, I, I never knew what a do-over was until I talked to my daughter and she said, Dad, you really need to get with it because do-overs are things that people oftentimes think about more than anything else. Well, this morning as we look at this passage, we begin to see some things that are really quite amazing because Jesus does not come to do a do-over. He comes to accomplish something that's a problem within the human heart that is a problem not just for the Queen of England, but for you. And it's called a unbelief in God. It's the problem if you look in your Bible, some Bibles have it as a subheading of this passage the sin of unbelief. Well, what, what in the world does that mean, the sin of unbelief? Well, the first thing the Bible teaches us is that the normal world we live in is under the dominion of sin. And this is going to really kind of shock people because many of you are looking at what's happening on your TV, on your phone, uh, through other mediums, and you're looking at what's happening and choices that are being made and how people are living and movies that are being produced. And you're beginning to say, what, where in the world is all this going? What, what is happening to our culture? Well, it just seems, seems that nothing is, is, is ever clearly spelled out as what is good and bad. It seems like everything is good and you should do whatever you want. That kind of uh, culture we're living in is not new to the Christian. It's been around since the time of Christ. And in fact, the New Testament is filled with all kinds of admonitions for those who follow Christ to be aware of the times that we live in. And so as you and I begin to approach this passage, one of the things that begins to seize us is that Jesus is giving us information about the end that is as important today in the beginning as it ever will, will be in the, in the middle of living our lives. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, he tells us in so many words when you look at this that the people who saw him, look at verse 37, the people who saw him do miracles did not believe. Do you know the last miracle that we looked at in the Gospel of John was the raising of Lazarus from the dead? Now, I've had people die in my family. And I have grieved their loss. 
but to have them come alive after they are dead. If I knew the person who had that kind of power over death, I would get on my knees and worship them, wouldn't you? But after seeing that miracle, there were people who gathered around Jesus who not only did not believe in him and his words, they didn't like the fact that he raised Lazarus from the dead and they wanted to kill them both. And you think, where in the world does that kind of response come from? It comes from the sin of unbelief. It is the normal, natural way of life for everyone born in this world. The sin of unbelief is basically that condition where a person does not want to know the one true God understand why God created them and live according to the way God had intended from the beginning. And so when you look at our culture, you see normal without God. You see it all over the place. You see in the way in which people are making choices. You see it in the way that they're either dating or not dating. You're seeing in the ways that they're coupling. You see it in every way. And as you and I begin to struggle with this passage, one of the things that Jesus wants us to remember is that unbelief is a condition that is normal after the fall of Adam and Eve. And it's, it's, it has particular characteristics. What do I mean by that? Well, it, Paul writes in the second chapter of Ephesians, he says that we were dead in our transgressions and sins and we used to walk, live our life, make our choices following the course of the world that we live in. He says we would follow a power, a prince of the spirit in the air, that, that, that's a demonic or an anti-God spirit that was at work. And it would cause us or lead us to live in such ways that we would live by the passions of our flesh, whatever we wanted to do, by carrying out the desires of our body, whatever we satiated our senses with and it caused us to live and think in ways that were completely alien to who God is and by that very fact Paul goes on to say we were by nature children of wrath what does that mean we were already experiencing the wrath of God because by choosing not to worship God we were reaping in our choices the wrath that God had prepared for those who would reject him that's a pretty powerful imagery, isn't it? It's arresting to think of that way. And so as I, as I walk around the world and I see people and I look, look at things on TV or hear things in the radio or listen to podcasts, the thing that goes through my mind is, is the person presenting their ideas, are they someone who comes to know the God who created them or are they preaching, teaching promulgating ideas that are in opposition to God. Do you see that line? Do you see how that plays out? And so when, when John is writing this gospel, he is writing it so that you may believe in Jesus Christ. Well, what does that mean to believe? To be one who knows God and loves him. 
And so as we think about this condition of humanity, this sin of unbelief, it, it leads to all kinds of things. In, in the latter part in Ephesians, the fourth chapter, the 19th verse, he says that people who are separated from God are darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God. Think of that, alienated. Um, they are callous. Uh, I, I love I love the way Jim plays the guitar, but I guarantee you, if you looked at the tips of his fingers, he would have calluses there. Why? Because the callus is a way of protecting him, his 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 hands as he continues to play those strings, and he has to build up a resistance to them. Well, when a person is callous to God, they are someone who has built up a resistance in their heart to loving God, to serving God, to worshiping God. And Paul says we become calloused and we give ourselves over to sensuality and greed. Uh, greed is not something we like to talk about anymore. Greed is not being happy with what we have. It's always wanting more. Uh, I, I dare say I just found some wonderful crackers in the, in the, in the grocery store. Um, they're by, a, I think, a German company. I'm going to get the name wrong. It's Verut, Verut and they're, they're little wafer crackers. Have you seen those? Don't buy them. Uh, they're, they're, really, they're really not good for you. But I want you to know if you, they come in lime, peanut butter, strawberry, I'm going to make you hungry before it's over. And if you open those things up and you eat one, you go, man, that is so good. And before you know it, the whole half the package is gone. Why is it gone? I mean, by, by the end of two days, two packages are gone in our household. I don't know how the dog gets into the pantry that quickly. <laughs> what, what's going on? It, it's greed. You see, it's not being happy with a serving, suggested serving, three crackers. Well, that happened five, 15 crackers ago, right? You see, that greed that is in our hearts for more, never satisfied. Paul says that's the way the world is. That's normal for people apart from God. Now, there are two things as a Christian I have to be aware of in that point. First is, I, I should never condemn a person for being that way. I mean, they condemn themselves. I don't need to add to the fuel. They already are condemning themselves. I, I was like that. I was exactly like that. So were you. The most amazing thing is that these Jews who saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead should have immediately recognized who he was, but they didn't and they won't and they'll crucify him because of the sin of unbelief. You know, people do that today with Christ. That's why many of you are hesitant to share your faith in Jesus Christ because you don't want to be looked down on or looked at being strange or somehow... You, you're one of those Jesus people. Come on, really? You believe that? You see, that's a resistance. That comes from a calloused heart. That comes from a person who is not understanding what God's love is about, nor the true God who loves them, nor why God created them. Well, why is this so important? Well, it gets into the story as Paul, as John writes it for us because he's really trying to help us see that God God is so great that he can even take people who were callous to him and work out his plan. Amen. Now, does that surprise you? 
Remember last weekend we saw how God is a God who always constantly surprises us with what he is doing in the world. And so it, it is amazing to me how God in this particular verse is teaching us that through Jesus Christ, God is doing something that no one would believe, not even the Jews. If you go back to verse 34, or excuse me, 39, and you read that passage, it, it really is quite amazing because there he's quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting in such a way, he's quoting from Isaiah. And if you go back actually to verse 37, he says, even after Jesus had performed many signs in the presence, they still would not believe. Why? This was to fulfill the words of the prophet Isaiah. Lord, this is what Isaiah wrote hundreds of years before. Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the Lord of the, or the arm of the Lord been revealed? In other words, in that passage in Isaiah 6, Isaiah is hearing, and in Isaiah 53, Isaiah is hearing from the Lord that there is a message that Isaiah is going to be preaching. And when people hear it, they're not going to believe it. What? Well, why even go and preach it? Because God's going to use it to do something they don't expect. That doesn't make any sense. Exactly. God doesn't make sense as far as the world in the way the world lives. God is, a world, God is a God who's greater than the world. And so when you and I begin to look at this passage, it becomes really amazing because you then ask yourself, well, wait a minute. If God has sent Jesus into the world and he's done that so the world may be saved, they may see the light, repent, and turn and believe in him, then why don't these Jews fall on their feet or they're on their knees from their feet and worship him? And God tells us it's because he's working out a plan they don't expect. God is going to hearten their hearts. God is going to cause them not to believe. Now, at first, you're going to think, well, wait a minute, that sounds cruel. You don't understand. God is giving them what they want. They don't want to believe in Jesus. And we found that when Jesus entered Jerusalem on the back of the foal of a donkey, Jesus comes not as a conquering servant. He doesn't come to force you, to bend you, to break you. Jesus comes to offer salvation in such a way that you will see your sin for what it is and turn from it and turn to God in Christ. And you will do it not because some military force has overtaken you or forced you to do something you don't want. That God will do this in such a way that you will long for the living God. You'll long for him. When you see the beauty of Christ and the glory of God, you suddenly say, oh, Lord, Jesus, forgive me and come into my life. Well, how does this hardening, why does it take, has it ever happened before? Yeah, in Isaiah. 
If you go back to that 39th verse, it says, For this reason they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Well, why would God do that? Because in order for them to be forgiven, if you go to chapter 53 of Isaiah, beginning with verse uh, verse 2, Isaiah reveals that this one who would come to redeem us would have to suffer horrible, agonizing death for our sins. Suffer? Why would he suffer? Because sin and all that it is must be judged for what it is. It is a rejection of God. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. death. I have a dog named Gus and it would be really kind of ridiculous for me to come home and expect to walk in and expect Gus to be anything more than a dog. But if one day he walked in and I tried to teach him how to crow like a chicken, how successful do you think that would be? Or, or maybe yet, we'll get a cat. And by having the cat in the place, then Gus will start meowing. Right? Does that, does that make sense to you? No? Okay, all right. How about this one? How about if I teach Gus to talk like a human? Yeah, I know y'all have been on Facebook. You've seen videos like this where the dog talk, talks back to their neighbors, Right? Let's just say that I'm going to walk in one day. I'm going to teach Gus how to talk like a human. Chances of that happening are pretty impossible. Why? Because his nature is a dog. And the chance of anyone separated from God because of their sins ever having a nature where they love God, pursue God, desire God, is impossible. You see, the Bible says we are dead in our transgressions and our sins. And the most amazing thing is that the Jews who saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead were just as dead as the Gentiles. They knew the word of God. They read their Bible. There was no transforming power that changed their nature. And this is why Christ died on the cross. Because it was only through his sacrifice on the cross that he paid the penalty of sin and through his resurrection that God now has made it possible for a person to be transformed in their heart so that once they were alienated from God, they can now know God and love him and draw near to him without any condemnation. Did you know that? That through the cross, God was going to do something that no one would ever expect. 
For the Jews, it was a matter of living enough of a good life that they somehow got God's approval. Are you living that way this morning? If you are, you are not connected to Christ. You are still living in the world. You are still believing in your mind and your heart that you can somehow by your good deeds, by living a good life, and it may not be perfect, but it's better than a lot of people, right? That somehow by doing that, then you are saved. And that's not true. You're just as lost as anyone else. And the difference is you were deceived because you think that somehow you have done something good in order to have God's blessing. None of that is the gospel. Every year we go through the painful process in our, church, in our home of watching us an old movie called The Sound of Music. Have you ever heard that sound of music? It, it, for those of you who haven't seen it, it's a, it's a very powerful film that puts me to sleep every year. And, and, and it's, it's one of those things where uh, Maria uh, is, is a nun. She's a nun in training, and she's praying that God will help her understand the path that she's supposed to go. But she does not need to be a nun. She wasn't cut out for it. And, and she's sent to be a, 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 a nanny for a captain who has lost his wife, and he has eight children, seven, seven children, and, and they're all brats. And she goes and she gets to know them, and they begin to love her, and she loves them. And all during this process, she brings something into this captain's life that starts to soften his heart, and he starts to begin having feelings for her. But, you know, all the drama, you've got to have drama in everything these days, don't you? Uh, the drama is that basically something happens where the captain's going to marry someone else. And Maria leaves because she's brokenhearted. Girls, you love this story, I know. And, and she's just thinking, you know, oh, my life is over because I'm in love with this man. And he has seven children. And I love his children, but now he's getting married to someone else. And so she runs away. But she realizes that she can't run away from her problems. And so, just like us, we can't run away from God. We can't run away from our problems, our sins. They're always before us. She goes back to the captain, and she finds out that he is going to go ahead and get married. And she's so sad, and she goes out to the gazebo that's out in the yard. And it's one of those soft moments. And the light is so soft, and everything's soft. It's just gushy. And, and the captain is realizing he's in love with her, so he tells his fiancée, you're out of here, sorry. And then runs out to the gazebo and says, well, I'm not getting married because you can't get married to someone you're not in love with. And she suddenly realizes, you know, she is the object of his love, and she breaks into song, right? And what does she sing? Somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. Because here you are standing here loving me, whether or not you should. That's the way most people think of the gospel. And that's not the gospel. The gospel is simply this. While you were dead in your transgressions and sins, unable to love God separated because of the enmity that you had for him. God loved you so much, he sent Christ to die on the cross for you. 
and raised him from the dead, that when you would put your faith in Christ and his work of the cross, you would be forgiven and reconciled to God. That doesn't make sense in the world because the world says you have to earn God's favor. And let me tell you, Jesus is telling us there's no way you can earn it. If this truth permeates your heart deep enough, it will change your entire life. Because you will no longer go through life trying to please people or yourself or an unmet expectation that you have carried as a scar from your childhood, you will begin to understand that God loves you so powerfully, so strongly, that when you came to Christ and asked God to forgive you and believed upon the cross, that it was that instrument of torture that God surprisingly completely paid the penalty of our sins once and for all, you will forever be changed in your mind, in your affections, in your flesh. Oh, you may go back and maybe do something you know that doesn't please God, but you can't live there. You come back to the Lord and you say, Lord, forgive me. We prayed that kind of prayer this morning in our confession. You see, the most amazing thing is that, that God's judicial hardening of the Jews was, was a, an event that God had foreordained and made happen because in his sovereignty, he was going to bring forth a savior into the world who would suffer for our sins. But never did he put a gun up to the Jews and say, hate me. They already did. God did not send Jesus into the world to force you to come to church. God did not send Jesus into the world to force you to read the Bible, to force you to pray. No, we do these things because we've come to know the love of Christ. And in knowing him, we desire him. We want to be closer to him. And so when we think of this hardening that God has done, the hardening was for our blessing, not for our cursing. Many still believed in Jesus. And in fact, after the resurrection, the whole church in the first century was made up of Jews. And so God never pits or, or never puts in opposition human responsibility to what he has chosen. Someone could say, well, well, God never gave me faith. Does that make you any more innocent of the sins you've committed? No. The second is that God is holy in that he condemns sin. He condemns it. And for we who come to know Christ, that condemnation was laid upon Christ. That's the difference. He was condemned for our transgressions. And the most amazing thing is that people who are left in the world who resist this message, they are left under his condemnation because they choose to be so. They choose it. 
They can't stand before God and say, well, I have a way out. I have an excuse. You were mean. God says, here's the message of the gospel. Believe in Christ. The most amazing thing is that God's sovereignty is a cause for hope. I know many of you are thinking right now, well, what about my, what about my children who don't follow Christ? What about, what about my husband? What about my, my family? What about the friends that I have? Don't, they don't believe in Christ. Are they going to perish? Yes, they will unless they turn and believe in Christ. But here's the hope. Just like Isaiah prayed in the 63rd chapter, so we should pray, God, have mercy. Have mercy upon those who cannot see the light of Christ. Enlighten their eyes to see, their hearts to believe. Help them to hear and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and put their trust in him. And God is sovereign enough that he can do that. And the final part of that is that God's hardening of the people, those Jews, was ultimately bringing God's redemptive plan and purpose to pass. You see, with all the reading and study that they had done, they had overlooked passages like Isaiah 53. They had overlooked other passages that spoke of the need to have a Savior who would bear our sins and take upon himself our iniquity. I don't know if you've been online, but there's a famous, well-known uh, Facebook post that's called Prager University. It's put out by a man named Prager. Do y'all know he's an Orthodox Jew? Do you know that? He's an Orthodox Jew. And some people who have enjoyed his postings have written him questions like, I don't understand why you're not a Christian. And so he spent some time responding to that as a Jew. And he said, here's my problem. He said, I don't believe Jesus is God. And so I cannot put my faith in someone who I believe to be a person that claimed to be God. Now he goes on to say, but Jesus was a good person. Now, now think of the oxymoron of that, that that gives. Jesus is a good person, but he's now lied about who he is by claiming to be God. Is that a good person? No, it's not, is it? Here's the amazing thing in the rest of the passage. Isaiah saw Jesus' glory. What do I mean? Look at, verse 30, look at verse 42 or 41. He goes on to say, And Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. How yet? Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in Jesus. But because of their Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the pray, human praise more than the praise of God. Well, what does he mean by that? He's talking about the fact that Isaiah, knowing that God's plan was to send a Savior, was going to do so in such a way that the Jews would indeed reject him. And at the same time that they would reject him, there would be many who would believe in him. But they would fear saying so because they did not want to lose their position or prestige among the other Jews. What does Jesus do? Does he condemn them? 
Does he chastise them? No. In verse 30, 43, he goes on to say, believe in me. Believe in me. Powerful, isn't it? Jesus cries out in verse 44, whoever believes in me does not believe. Now listen to this, only in me, but in the one who sent me. Now here it is. Here is where we need to pray for Mr. Prager. Because Jesus says to believe in him is to believe in God. To behold his presence is to behold the presence of God. To believe in him is, del is deliverance from what separates us from God. And most importantly, the final judgment of all that will be simply this. That those who turn and believe in him will be saved and those who won't will continue, continue down the path that they have chosen. Which is rejection of God. And it only leads to one place, death, separation from God forever. I don't know about you, but I, I find this amazing because if you go to the New Testament letters, you find continually Paul teaching the people who've received the gospel to remember this truth, that God who is rich in mercy because of his great love for us, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgression and sins, made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, faith, and he's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ so that in the coming ages we might show the immeasurable richness of God's grace and kindness toward us who believe in Jesus. And so that's why you're seeing today the church being attacked. Why? Because people are living on a worldly standard that I am good enough, I'm better than others, therefore I'm okay with God. And the truth is they are all in a cycle of death because they have rejected the one true God. And the only hope they have is the message of the church. That God so loved the world that whosoever would believe in him would have eternal life and not perish. Do you begin to see why it is that the church is being shouted down in the world today? You see, the only hope the world has is the gospel. The only hope. When we see the confusion in sexuality in our day, when we see the overwhelming political divide that is happening in our country, when we see this animosity and this crime and all of this violence that is happening in our culture, why is it happening? It's happening because we have lost the capacity to know and love the true God. And the more that happens, the worse it's going to get. Do, do you hear me? The more this happens in our culture, the worse it's going to get. And this is why as a church we have to be careful that we preach Christ. Because through him and by him and in him is the salvation, the wholeness, the true life that people are seeking. To condemn them is not what we are to do. There's going to be time for a judgment. But Jesus says, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world. No. I came to give life. Let me ask you, in light of the passage we've studied this morning, and we have to close, I'm so sorry it's been so long. Do you 
Do you feel like you could explain the gospel to someone? Do you feel like you could help them understand why Jesus died for them? I want to say that's probably what we need to focus on over the next year as a church. Is what is the gospel? And how do we begin to let people know of God's love? We can't expect them to live differently. Do you all hear this? We cannot expect people to live godly lives unless they know the God who loved them in Christ. And there's the challenge for us. How do we begin to look at this culture, now three generations that does not believe in absolute truth, and begin to reveal the one who is the way, the truth, and the life? something to pray about, isn't it? Let's pray together. Our gracious God and our Father, we thank you for the word of God. It is, it is that word that is given to us that we may know and truly love who not only you are, but who you have created us to be. And so as we've worked through this passage this morning, I, I fear in many ways, God, that I've never done enough justice to this difficult passage. But my prayer is that as we study this and as we think deeply about the calling of Jesus Christ, that we would first and foremost make certain that we have come to faith in him. And then in that coming to faith in him, trusting that God will use our witness of Christ and what Jesus has done for me, that will begin to be heard by others who are separated from him. And being separated from him, they may come to know the way in which you have provided salvation and eternal life for anyone who would turn and believe. Deliver us from the sin of unbelief and cause us, O oh God, to fear and love what the world sees as foolishness but it is the wisdom of God at work. We ask and we pray this in Jesus' name. And the people of God said together, Amen. Amen.